When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Here we go, the official show on the Fish Stripes Podcast channel, now presented by ExoGun. Check out ExoGun for the most powerful handheld massagers at exogun.com. E-X-O-G-U-N.com. I'm Eli Sussman, the managing editor of Fish Stripes, where we cover your Miami Marlins every day in our own way. Go to fishstripes.com. One more month remaining in this regular season. If you haven't already, just leave a rating and review for Fish Stripes on Apple. For every new rating and review that we get through the end of that regular season, it's an extra dollar being donated to the Players Alliance. You can find out all about that great organization at the Players Alliance. Dot com. So, coming at the end of uh, holiday weekend, happy Labor Day to everybody. Hopefully that is giving you some extended leisure from your normal responsibilities on this holiday. The Marlins just won a series. I, at this stage of the season, do not spend a whole lot of time going into the particulars of individual games when the team is 23 games below 500 and only 25 games remaining in the year and the roster is comprised the way it is you understand that it's not really worth emphasizing in terms of where this organization is going as a whole. These games were kind of interesting, though. I mean, not only winning the series, but coming awfully close to sweeping the series, which we know has been such a rarity for the Marlins this season. You remember on Friday, one of the biggest rallies of the entire Marlins season to open up that game, putting up double-digit runs on the Phillies in the opener um, and then the two other games after that, both of them in the gorgeous Sugar Kings City Connect uniforms were more closely contested with the Marlins winning on Saturday and then losing in extra innings on Sunday. Uh, the main topic of this episode is going to be one that does have more impact on the team's long-term uh, viability, and that's how they are going to handle Brian Anderson, who is believed to be out for the season now after aggravating his left shoulder injury. So we'll be getting into that in just a few minutes. But some individual player notes to get into from this weekend from the Marlins versus Phillies on Saturday. We finally got the return of Trevor Rogers after missing more than a month. Um, prior to that, he was dealing with back spasms, made one start after that, and then was gone for several weeks to deal with a family emergency. As we later were informed, he lost both of his grandfathers to COVID-19 and 
had a scary situation with his mom as well before she was able to pull out of it. The Marlins give them credit for allowing him to give priority to what really matters, more so than baseball, more so than rookie of the year and all of that stuff. If you're interested in where Rodgers may stand in the rookie of the year race, we're going to have an article up on Fish Stripes updating that very shortly from Juan Pais. Uh, from this start, uh, he was not fully stretched out to be a starter again after the time away and after a relatively quick rehab assignment. So he gets pulled in the middle of the fifth inning and gives up two runs. He recorded only three strikeouts, which is low by his standards for sure. Uh, eight, eight base runners overall between hits and walks and got taken deep by Andrew McCutcheon. But the stuff in a vacuum looked pretty close to normal. His fastball velocity peaked in over 96 miles per hour in a couple of instances and comfortably sitting around 94. Good change-ups, good sliders, a lot of change-ups and a lot of sliders. What was important about this is he finally got to work with Alex Jackson for the first time. I, I, maybe that's not a critical component. We're not sure exactly how prominently involved Jackson will be with this team next season if he doesn't start to hit just a little bit. From a pitching-catcher relationship, though, it was important to get this out of the way. Hopefully, you know, by his next start, he will be relatively stretched out to normal. I don't think they would hesitate to let him go right around 100 pitches moving forward over these final four or hopefully five more outings that he could squeeze in between now and the very end of the year. The rest of the bullpen behind him was great in that game, though, to let that performance hold up and for the Marlins to come away with that win on Saturday. Somebody who pitched on both Saturday and Sunday. Shout out to Stephen Okert. I think any way you slice it, he has been the number one relief pitcher for the Marlins since the All-Star break. I think that was right around when he came up from Triple A Jacksonville. I'll double check that. It may have been a little bit before that, but to this point now has appeared in 24 games, and he's got an ERA of about 1.8 through all that time, used in a variety of situations, sometimes multi-innings, sometimes very high leverage as he was this weekend. It's been very impressive for a guy that had some major league experience prior to this year, but was very under-the-radar signing for the Marlins this year and yeah we now about exactly two months or so of data from him since he got called up from triple a i think it goes without saying that the the shiny era and run prevention probably won't hold up he is an extreme fly ball pitcher no matter what ballpark you're pitching in um if you're allowing extreme fly balls and your swing and miss stuff is kind of meh then eventually the home runs are going to catch up to you to this point, he's allowed just three of them in 24 and a third innings, and I imagine that rate would tick up a little bit moving forward if things continue the way that they do. Still a great acquisition for them to get with him, someone who is potentially under control for four more years beyond this year, if I have that right. It could be five. I'll have to double-check that afterwards in editing, whether it's, it might actually be five years of club control if they choose to use it. Uh, and the Marlins, as we've seen kind of year after year under this new regime, probably like one of the most effective aspects of the organization is finding gems on minor league free agent deals. And Stephen Okert is the latest one of those. In Sunday's game, as usual, with this Marlins team for most of the year, but especially, you know, since like June when they fell out of contention, 
the in-game managerial maneuvering is just baffling. And I don't even want to like single out Don Mattingly as making all those calls. It, it, some of them are just so confusing in the moment that you wonder whether or what kind of like marching orders he's receiving with the way that he handles this team. Um, you could cut him some slack on Sunday because as we found out post-game, Miguel Rojas removed surprisingly in the top of the ninth inning. That was due to left trapezius soreness. And if you've been following Miggy Rose's career, he has acquired so many of these uh, nicks and cuts and bruises, and he's played through so many of them. We'll see exactly what his pain tolerance is with this, how much hopefully it subsides with the off day coming up. And with Jorge Alfaro, he didn't play in Sunday's game at all, dealing with what appears to be somewhat of a chronic right knee issue. A number of weeks, Mattingly said that Alfaro has been managing the soreness. And as it was pointed, brought to my attention how, I guess, either way you look at it, it's it's just not good that he's been playing as often as he has been if he's not fully healthy and if he's not effective, which has been the bottom line, which is why for over a month, I've been suggesting that they, the Marlins should kind of politely ease him out of their t- their organization, whether it's a, an actual DFA move or a phantom injury, and the fact that he has somewhat of a legitimate injury, and they haven't put him on the IL, and they continue to use him as much as they have, whether you're catching, which obviously puts strain on your knees if you're squatting for a couple hundred pitches a night, and or if you're running around in the outfield and at a position where you have no prior experience until the middle of the season, there's no like charitable way to put it. It's just nonsensical at this point that he's playing instead of Lewin Diaz, instead of, say, Nick Fortes. They have intriguing guys at AAA that uh, I've mentioned on multiple platforms would make a whole lot of sense to fit on this roster at this moment. I've kind of gone past the point of obsessing over those individual moves. I mean, it's something that I would hope Kim Eng can address at the end of the season. And she just has not held that wide media availability at any point since the trade deadline to explain what is going on and and why their priorities are what they are at this stage of the season, because it really is directionless any way you look at it, especially if you try to follow the team every day. It is a big, head-scratching experience. As I mentioned up top, new presenting sponsor for the Fish Stripes podcast, check out Exogun for the most powerful handheld massagers, whether it's your neck, your chest, forearms, upper arms, lower back, upper back, hip, glutes, quads, hands, feet. Use percussive therapy for the ultimate recovery. Use the link in the podcast description to shop on the Exogun website and enter our discount code FISHSTRIPES, all one word, to save 10% on your entire order. Treat yourself with the therapy device trusted by pros worldwide. Remember to use the code FISHSTRIPES for 10% off. Just like you guys, the Marlins are getting a discount moving forward on Brian Anderson if they choose to use it. His season is over. Craig Mish reports the Marlins have not confirmed, but the diagnosis is the same as it was in late May, a left shoulder subluxation that originally kept him out for about two months. I think the consensus back then was that the Marlins are being 
overly cautious with him that he could have come back sooner. Um, as it turns out, you know, he looked all right at times during this most recent stint. Uh, was over a month of a sample size that we got with him playing mostly as a regular third baseman, but not great. And we didn't even see the particular play where he may have aggravated this again. But either way, this is where we are. And the question moving forward is, what do you do with a guy that, you know, I've been so loud a proponent of extending and locking him in as your third baseman of the foreseeable future, but his production fell short of everybody's expectations here in 2021. We'll have to find out uh, hopefully soon about the treatment plan for this most recent subluxation, whether it is just continued rest and rehab or whether they have to do some sort of surgical procedure. As you'll find out at the end of the show, that does really affect the way that I view him moving forward because there is pretty significant difference between how they address that injury, assuming that both routes are on the table. His final stats for the 2021 season, a 249 batting average, 337 on base, 378 slugging. That's a league average hitter when you adjust for the season and you adjust for Lone Depot Park. 101 weighted runs created plus, where league average is 100. 1.3 wins above replacement in 67 games. Even though he was... This was the worst hitting that he's done in a semi-full season since he's been a big leaguer. You know, there was that little cup of coffee he got in 2017, but from 2018, 2019, 2020, all those years, he was pretty substantially above average for a hitter, and that was not the case this year. His career stats overall now stand at 263, 347, 423 slash line. That's a 112 WRC+. plus. And according to both Baseball Reference and Fangraphs, he's been a nine-win player in 433 games. So that's like the equivalent of about three mostly full seasons, a three-win player per year, if you assume relatively good health moving forward. He's an above-average player, and I feel like there's some people that don't fully understand that, that they they do still continue to underrate him uh, just because there are... Still some things we haven't seen him do. It seems he has plateaued these last few years instead of, you know, continuing on a linear ascension to being, you know, an all-star candidate. He's clearly a tier below the the all-star players at his position, but relative to his teammates, I mean, relative to the alternatives that the Marlins have at third base for the foreseeable future, uh, I still hold him in an extremely high regard. Um, Just... My perception of him right now is that he is right there among the elite defensive third baseman, even if he's not there as an overall player. One reason why he was still you know, on a three-win pace this year, had it not been for injuries, is that his defense rated as well as ever. 0-2 oh, on Thomas, and that is chopped to third. Anderson from foul territory throws across his body, and it's picked by Aguilar. He makes those barehanded plays running in on slow ground balls, he has great reflexes, a great throwing arm that I feel has gotten more accurate through the years. That's been the one continuous improvement in his game is the accuracy of his arm because he's always had the velocity on those throws. His ability to handle being used in unconventional shifts, all the times that they've moved him to the right side of the field, and he's been participating in double plays there, and he's been making plays 
in much larger spaces than you would have to deal with ordinarily as a guy that is stationed near the third base bag. His ability to adjust to that has really wowed me as well. All his, all of his athleticism that he may have had coming up in, in the minors, I feel that is still there. He's his sprint speed right there around league average. He was stealing bases a little bit more this year than he had been in previous years as well. For really the last decade or so, a lot of Marlins hitters have been undone by their struggles at Lone Depot Park. You know, previously Marlins Park in its dimensions and its atmospheric conditions, more than a few players that were so promising coming up just have not been able to hit for any power at home, which is why we shouldn't take for granted that B.A. is an exception to that. He plays neutrally, no matter where you put him, the production is almost identical in his career at home versus on the road. The one curiosity with his offensive game that I still haven't cracked yet is his platoon splits. And this was the case even entering this year, that they were almost identical, hitting against righties and also hitting against lefties. And then this year, again, the sample was pretty small compared to his previous seasons, but the splits were insane in a reverse situation where he was hitting very well against right-handed pitching and he was performing terribly against left-handed pitching. And I prefer that more than the other way around. Um, There's really no studies show that there's no disadvantage that you have when you are facing opposite-handed pitching. You just see the ball better and over a large enough sample, your production should be fine relative to your talent level when you are put in those favorable matchups. If someone is struggling consistently against same-handed pitching, I think that's when you really need to have a long thought about whether or not they're an everyday player. With B.A., I think you'd rather have it this way, that there's this like really bizarre struggle when you're at a platoon advantage because you feel like that will definitely even up as things move forward. Although, for his career, it's been... A really strange situation in that he does perform significantly better against righties than he does against lefties. That's something I'll dive in a little bit more later. This isn't going to be a total thorough breakdown of B.A. as we're still awaiting clarity about how exactly he's going to recover and what his precise timeline is to be back to 100% again. And the one critique that you can't hide from is his terrible production against breaking balls. That will, for the most part, include sliders and curveballs. In my opinion, some cutters are basically breaking balls, as defined by baseball savants in his stats. This is now back-to-back years where he has been awful in plate appearances that end with breaking balls, whether it's you know him making poor contact on those pitches or in two-strike situations where he whiffs against breaking balls. A huge problem each of the last two years with very few extra base hits at all against those pitches and whiffing at an extremely high rate is exit velocity on average against those pitches much lower than other pitch types. We haven't reached a point where opponents are like obsessing over them. There still needs to be a balance between using their other pitches to, you know, actually throw pitches in the zone and get ahead against him. I do wonder exactly when that pendulum is going to swing a little bit more dramatically because this production is it's right there among the worst of regular players in baseball 
against those types of pitches, and you can see it. You don't even need to see the stats. Just watching him, you could see all the off-balance swings that he takes um, against them and how he, how frustrated he gets. Uh, I guess one thing that many of us probably like about him is how passionate he is and how how hard he is on himself, that he is his own harshest critic and understanding when he misses opportunities to contribute with the bat. He, he's very visible about that type of stuff. And it's particular with those breaking balls that there's a very limited ceiling on who he can be offensively if he yeah just cannot track those pitches and put the good part of the bat on them. It's as simple as that. B.A. this year earning $3.8 million. This was his first year of arbitration eligibility. I think even with the injuries, he gave them a decent value in that regard. The salary will go up next year. We'll see exactly what this new collective bargaining agreement may change with player compensation, but historically what arbitration is is that when you get on the field, um, your counting stats, for the most part, and some of your rate stats, that affect you know the type of raise that you get heading into the following year. I would think that he's in line for about $4.5 million next year, maybe close to 5 but not more than that, where it will continue to be a very good value as long as they perceive him as roughly an everyday player, which is what they should be perceiving him as, regardless of how mildly disappointing his 2021 was. Some of the alternatives, though, if you want to be, if you want to dream, if you want something to think about right now, um, if you see the current product and you've reached this conclusion that Isan Diaz and Joe Panic probably aren't the answer at the hot corner in his absence. On the market, the name, the biggest name out there that could play third base and primarily has played third base in his major league career would be Chris Bryant, mostly with the Cubs and finishing out his walk here with the Giants right now, where they're using him almost entirely in the outfield. He really does have amazing versatility, which probably Brian Anderson himself could have if the Marlins needed him to do that. With Bryant, of course, the ceiling is a lot higher. He's a former National League MVP, even this year, which is not his best year. You know, he's on pace to get close to 30 home runs with the Cubs and the Giants combined. And he is going to be entering his age 30 season next year. That would be the first one under his new contract. Of course, he is represented by Scott Boris. He is, because of his really excellent track record outside of the 2020 wacko season, he's going to be in line for a nine-figure, $100 million-plus contract. The Marlins are not going to be anywhere near that ballpark and spending on an individual player. So really, the one guy in free agency that I think makes quite a bit of sense if the Marlins are you know frustrated with B.A. at third base and want to, or just want to switch things up, it would be Eduardo Escobar. You remember... Potentially, I did have an article about him in the middle of the season before the season went all the way down the drain. I said, this is a versatile guy on a team going nowhere in Arizona that can plug a lot of holes for you with how much the Marlins had questions about their infield depth. He was a guy that can move around that has been a great run producer both this year and going back to the previous full season in 2019. He is a few of a little bit older than Bryant or B.A. He'd be in his age 33 season that takes into effect next year. But his his numbers have been pretty good as an all-around player. 
he receives really high marks for his clubhouse influence. Uh, the versatility is important. The on-base skills aren't great. Uh, I think even less so than B.A. He, he, he won't give you a ton in that department, but the extra base hits will be there. And and overall, the value as a player, it's roughly the same as what B.A. has been providing in recent seasons himself. So he's a guy that could be a successor, but he could also be complementary in some way, depending on how else the Marlins go about their offseason. Kyle Seeger is having a big power-hitting year in the final guaranteed year of his deal with the Mariners. He's somebody that I've compared Brian Anderson to um, previously, with Seeger having been the similar type of player, but you know about six or seven years ahead of him. He's, he's a lot older. He has a club option in his contract that I'm not sure the Mariners will pick up, because I think it's at about $15 million, but they may renegotiate that in some way because it's the organization he's always been with. I'd say it's unlikely that that's going to be a fit for him. The other name that I wanted to bring up in free agency is Jonathan VR, who we are less than two years removed from the Marlins trading to acquire. Remember, they got him coming off his great all-around season in Baltimore, and they acquired him knowing he was arbitration eligible. They signed up to pay him over $8 million dollars in 2020. As it turns out with the pandemic, you know, they saved most of that money and the money they did pay did not go to good use because VR was very mediocre and frustrating for them. And he turned out to be even worse for the Blue Jays, which is why his stock was really far down when he entered free agency this past winter. The Mets picked him up really at the very start of spring training, if not even during spring training. And he didn't play a whole lot early on, but now he has steadily endeared himself to that fan base and that team as a critical piece because of his versatility and the primary position that he's been playing for the Mets in 2021. If you have not noticed, he is their primary third baseman. How about that? And he's putting up the numbers that are very similar to what he did in 2019 when the Marlins were intrigued by him in the first place. Uh, As I'm recording this, he had yet another home run on Sunday. He's on pace to hit almost as many home runs as he did in 2019. His slash line is extremely similar, hitting about 270, OPSing over 800. He is back to being the guy, for the most part, that they thought he was in 2019, with the exception being his base running. I guess he's reached that stage of his career where that stuff can fall apart pretty suddenly, your efficiency on the bases. And we know it's not just about his physicality, but his decision-making is what kind of drives you crazy as well. So I would file that under... Um, relatively unlikely that the Marlins are going to give him another shot, given how that went the first time. It kind of depends on what his market is, though. I think if he ends up being a player in that price range that he was at originally, if he's like an $8 million player for a two-year deal or so, there's a point where they would have to seriously consider it. He has some of that same versatility as Escobar does. And we know that as much as this team loves what they have up the middle in Miguel Rojas and Jazz Chisholm. Both of those guys are susceptible to missing time with minor injuries. Even if it doesn't fit perfectly on paper, there would be a lot of playing time going around. And that playing time this year went into the dumpster where all of their alternatives for those middle infield spots have totally flopped. They need more depth. Uh, I'm not sure whether they would want to spend at VR's level to get more of a depth guy instead of an everyday guy. 
still a name that I want to throw out there, and I want you to think about him because we were pretty excited about him at this time like a year and a half ago. And despite that down year that he did have in 2020, I don't know if um, he's someone you should totally like move on from. That There's a little more to his story than what you witnessed firsthand. Trade candidates, the dream that you've all probably thought about already to this point is Jose Ramirez from Cleveland. He has two more years on his contract, both of them being team options. He is once again kind of on the fringes of the MVP conversation. You know, he's never won an American League MVP, but this is probably going to be the fourth time that he finishes in the top five in voting. Just an outstanding, outstanding player. He does some of the things that we've already mentioned with these previous guys. He gets for just about as much power as Chris Bryant does. At this point, he steals even more bases than Jonathan Villar does. And if necessary, he has kind of the versatility that someone like Escobar does at both third base and second base. He's right around the same age that Chris Bryant is, just a little bit older than Brian Anderson. Cleveland, Cleveland is at a very strange spot in their trajectory where it's kind of unclear what they're going to do from here. They've stars at the top of their roster in Ramirez and Shane Bieber. Shane Bieber coming off an injury, and the team itself was never a real big playoff threat to begin with this year. You do wonder whether or not he'll be available if the Marlins do dip into their great farm system depth to put together a package for him that seems like someone they could attain. Um, another one that I want to circle is Luis Arise of the Twins. The Twins themselves, even more so than Cleveland, they seem determined to be a competitive team um, next year in 2022, and Arise is a big part of what they do right now. He very quietly is one of the major league leaders in batting average, dating back to his debut in 20. 20- 19. Let me see if I could pull that up. That entering this day, he was hitting for his career. His career batting average is 315 in that's almost 800 at bats. So it's not quite as much playing time as Brian Anderson has had, but he's a lot younger than BA. He is going to be 25 shortly after opening day. He's technically going to be 24 at the start of next season. Not even arbitration eligible yet. He doesn't hit for power, but incredible contact skills, great discipline in general, just as many walks as strikeouts for his major league career, which has become almost um, like mythical for a player to be able to do that against major league pitching over an extended sample. He has a lot of versatility, second base, third base, and left field. He's done a little bit of, especially this year, and I wonder if the Twins do have enough position player depth and guys with impact that they'd be willing to part with him um, for would take a pretty decent haul of prospects, but nowhere near as much as you'd be giving up for someone like Jose Ramirez. So circling back to Brian Anderson, uh, as we close this out, uh, I do have an article. I'll link to it in here. I'm not hiding from it. I did go on the record as saying that a reasonable extension for him entering this season is, is brace yourself. I did say Seven years, $68 million would have been a reasonable price to sign him to entering the 2021 season. So that would have been locking him up through his entire prime, if not a little bit of his post-prime, through the 2027 season. It included an an opt-out clause after the fifth year, where the five-year deal would have been like five years and low 50-ish million dollars. 
Uh, I thought if the Marlins waited any longer that the price would only go up to extend him. And as it turns out, I was wrong about that. That doesn't mean that the Marlins were right. I don't think they profiled him as a guy that was super vulnerable to shoulder injuries. I guess we'll never know the full truth about that. Uh, as it turns out, the window to negotiate a deal with him, I believe, is now improbably still open pretty wide for them, which it might not have been if he had had a career year this year, which would not have been out of the realm of possibility. The price has clearly gone down to this point. As uh, enthusiastic as I am about Brian Anderson, even still, uh, I have to admit that if they gave him that money right now, it just would not be reasonable coming off the kind of year that he did have. So what are we looking at now? Um, a couple players, I was trying to look for like comparable third baseman that signed extensions under these circumstances, you know, at this stage of their career with some injury concerns. And I really didn't find any recent comps that made a lot of sense. Instead, a, a few outfielders that came up were Aaron Hicks, who was en- about to enter his walk year with the Yankees, and they gave him seven years, $70 million. Hicks was coming off a better year previously to that than Brian Anderson has ever had. but And they were about the same age at that point. Uh, but I think that's certainly on the high end at, at this point for B.A. under these circumstances. Randall Grichik is another one, another outfielder with the Blue Jays who signed a five-year, $52 million deal, and he was actually a little bit younger than B.A. at that point when he was getting an average annual value a little bit over $10 million. Uh, he had some of that same mixed track record in, in terms of staying on the field, although he wasn't coming off a significant injury the way that B.A. will be directly. Um, on the low end of that is, here's a name, Michael Brantley. He was a little bit younger than B.A. is right now when Cleveland gave him four years and $25 million, which turned out to be a fabulous bargain for him because he ended up breaking out into a fringe MVP candidate the very next year with Cleveland back then. I think even with this injury, that that B.A. has shown more offensively to this point in his career than Brantley did at that point in his career, where you can assume that the average annual value for Brantley, that was only $6.25 million. Um, If you were going to buy out any of Brian Anderson's free agent years at this point, you'd have to go a little bit higher than that. So this whole conversation, as I said, is kind of contingent on exactly what is next in B.A.'s recovery from the shoulder injury. As a reminder, it is his left shoulder, his non-throwing shoulder. For someone who really stands out for the strength and accuracy of his arm, that's pretty important that you know that his right throwing arm is not going to be directly infected by this. Even so, it's something that is still a big component of his swing to have strength from both sides of your body and to have it all balanced. It needs to be fully healed. The way that it heals is going to be critical. If he is going to undergo surgery this offseason, I would not even really broach the idea of an extension with him at that time. There are so many variables when you're coming back from surgery that you can't control for. And the track record of some guys, even hitters, it's not only pitchers, but even with hitters coming back from shoulder surgery, it could take a little while to be your old self. It could take a portion of that upcoming season to get back into a groove, or sometimes it could take even the following year. 
if he does have to undergo surgery, I think the Marlins do have to view him as a year-by-year guy where they he'd really have to prove himself in 2022. And they would, even if holding on to him instead of trading him, they would need to spend quite a bit on an insurance policy. Somebody like a Jonathan VR, for example, um, to come onto their team and give them sufficient depth in case he has some kind of setback going on there, or in case he just does not perform at all the way that you expect him to. In a best-case scenario, where they feel he can heal from this on his own with this number of months before now in spring training, he can he can strengthen that shoulder in a way that they feel confident the issue won't recur again. I think the price range I came up with would be a four-year deal in the in the $38 million range. So it's based loosely on the figures they came up with before in that original extension idea, except obviously you cut off some of the length instead of buying out what would have been, what, four free agent years. My previous idea, this would be only buying out two potential free agent years for BA, and it would include a club option at the end. I think they do have enough leverage in this situation where that security would be valued a lot by him. Uh, Instead of paying what was it before, like $14 million for his free agent years. I think at this point, you can lower that projection to $12.5 million. And so the breakdown that I have is four years, uh, $38 million, where it's a $4 million salary for next year, a $7 million salary for 2023, $12.5 each for 2024 and 2025, and then the option for 2026 would be $12.5 million or a $2 million buyout of that option if he doesn't get back to being the guy that he used to be. If you pick up that club option, you end up having B.A. with the Marlins all the way through his age 33 season. Um, this is looking so far ahead, but that would make him one of the longer tenured players ever in the history of the franchise. And I understand why people aren't super enthused about this idea right now because he did not take that step forward that we were hoping he did. He really did not flash much of that either. You know, there weren't even like individual stretches where you're saying like, yes, this is a new peak that he is trying to unlock. At least offensively, he didn't reach that level as much appreciation as I do have for what he did with the glove. For a guy that is going to be turning 29 relatively early next season, it is certainly worth asking whether... We've already seen the best of him. That is a possibility. Um, And again, thankfully, the Marlins um, and B.A. did not put together the deal that I had originally thought of, you know, at this time last offseason, because a $68 million deal for a guy um, now coming off this kind of injury would certainly be a concern. But if you essentially cut that guarantee in half, as I'm proposing right here, I do think it like strikes that right balance between um, a player that has a pretty substantial track record as an above average everyday player. I can't stress that enough that he is above average for a team in the Marlins that at certain positions can't even get replacements level production. He's a guy that is producing several more wins on top of that when he is able to stay healthy. And that is a big piece of this puzzle that they're trying to put together um, to be a competitive team. They're at a point where, as I mentioned, there are a few really interesting options in both free agency and trade that they could go after um, that I'm not attached to BA uh, under 
all conditions. I think there is a way for them to shake things up and still have you feeling very confident heading into 2022. Um, unfortunately, just with their farm system, there's not a guy that sticks out internally that makes a lot of sense heading into next year or really even the year after that. You, I think you'd have to get to like 20, late 2023 before you start dreaming of Jose Salas really breaking through or maybe Cody Morissette, um, the most recent draft pick, surging up and being a really reliable on-base guy who could potentially play that position as well. Like They're going to have some options in there. Um, maybe it's even Khalil Watson, although he profiles more as a middle infielder option there, that like, there are ways that this could come together internally, but not immediately. You know, if they do have some urgency to win next year, they they better hope that BA can get through this without surgery, or they better be pretty aggressive this offseason in trying to sure up that position. So let me hear what you think about this most recent updated contract extension idea and just about the BA situation in general. You know, where do you think his career is going to go from here? Do you think it's important for the Marlins to have continuity? at that position plenty of content coming up for you this upcoming week in the meantime enjoy your holiday weekends and go fish